Hey there, it's Dina. Welcome to the 100th episode of Click Here, a hundred episodes of true stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. And today, we're going to do something a little different. A few weeks ago, I joined Jen White, the host of WAMU's 1A News Magazine, to talk about the biggest cyber stories of 2023. And we began our conversation with Lockbit, the ransomware group that, for the second year running, was responsible for almost half of the ransomware attacks we saw last year. And there were some crazy twists. Remember the Lockbit essay contest and the tattoo giveaway? Take a listen. So, Dina, first, let's just start with who the major players are in hacking this year. Oh, this year, the major players, as the same as last year, are Russian hackers, and in particular, a group called Lockbit. Let me just give some context as to why the Russians appear to be so prevalent in this world. And part of it is, is there's a wink and a nod between Russian-speaking cybercriminals and the Russian government. The wink and the nod has to do with, as long as you don't hack us... We will allow you to go and hack our adversaries or anybody outside of Russia. You can keep the money and we won't arrest you. Mm. They like the sort of chaos that that creates. So with that as a backdrop, it's not too surprising that a Russian group would be the one that was the most prevalent in ransomware last year. And that group is this Lockbit group, which is mostly Russian. And it's really different from your average ransomware group because they've really tried to professionalize the idea of ransomware. They even have a logo that's like a black and red and white writing, and uh, they put it on everything. Right. You spoke to John DiMaggio. He's a researcher at a cybersecurity company called Analyst One, and he went undercover and spent a lot of time with the Lockbit group. And here's what he said about the group's unusual twist on marketing. Not only did they create, you know, this this logo, but then they at one point paid people to tattoo it on their bodies. And I just when I heard that, I'm like, there is no way anyone is going to tattoo the name of a ransomware brand in their logo on their bodies. And there's quite a few people who did it. Uh, and it was for between $500 and $1,000. That's just crazy to me. So the first question that comes to mind for me, Dina, is why would you market criminal activity? Their, their business model is something called ransomware as a service. And they have professionalized that as well. And what that has to do with is we can provide for you, if you want to hack someone, everything you need, soup to nuts, we can get you access, we can get you the malware you you need, we can give you a step-by-step process on how to actually conduct the attack, and we'll take a cut. Or you pay us a flat fee and you do it as much as you want. And when you think about that being the model, it's the same reason why anybody brands anything. Use us, use Lockbit, don't use these other guys. People actually review their stuff. Their malware is good. Use this ransomware group. Use Lockbit because their malware always works. If there's a problem, they have customer service. So if you think about it in terms of a business, it's an illicit business, but if you think about it in terms of a business, it makes sense why they would do that. Why does the Lockbit group have so much influence Their malware is really good. They're very good at branding themselves. And, you know, again, it's sort of these reviews that you'll get from people. I use their malware. It was awesome. There was a bug or there was something in the system that I wasn't expecting was there. All I had to do was call Lockbit and they fixed it for me. So it's really sort of a word of mouth. And that's what's made them be responsible for over 44 percent of the ransomware attacks we saw last year. Well, one of Lockbit's victims included a small Canadian town called St. Mary's. And you spoke to the town's mayor, Al Strathdee, earlier this year. And he's, here's what he told you about the attack. 
and you feel like the world's going to end as you get into it more and more and you think, you know, what has happened? It's like being robbed. It's like we're invaded and robbed. And it was a smash and grab. Now, as you mentioned, Lockbit also targets hospitals. They threaten to release hospital data unless they're paid a ransom. What does that mean for care? So the, the University of Minnesota had a report that came out a couple of months ago. And what they did is they estimated that between 2016 and 2021, between 42 and 67 Medicare patients died as a result of these you know, outages caused by ransomware attacks. That's only Medicare patients. They expect the number is actually much bigger if you include all the other insurance. The Department of Health and Human Services announced an outline for cybersecurity strategy when it comes to health care facilities. According to the HHS, there's been a 278 percent increase in ransomware breaches into healthcare systems. How well positioned are U.S. institutions, schools, um, towns and cities, hospitals to have a proactive approach to protection rather than a reactive approach to a hack? It's a great question. I mean, part of what we're seeing and the reason why ransomware continues to rise is that these ransomware groups, as the sort of larger organizations sort of twig on that they need to have these sort of cybersecurity protections, what they end up going after is the low-hanging fruit. And if you think about it, how many cities have a tech team or an IT team? How many schools do? And uh, because of that, uh, hospitals do to a, a larger extent just because they have a lot of compliance rules that they have to have. And I would say in 2024, one of the groups that will probably see a decline in these attacks on hospitals because they're going to be forced to do something. But how do you force a small town? How about a school district? You know, they're stealing personal information of, you know, 10, 12, 14-year-olds, right, young kids. And they're hanging on to it in the idea that maybe later – that information actually is worth more in the dark market, that maybe later when they turn 18, they can assume their identities, open a bunch of credit cards, and it'll be a big sort of payday. Mm-hmm. That's what we're dealing with. Well, and a lot of places do have an IT team, but it's it's about making sure your computer's operating, the software you use internally is doing what it needs to do. But what I'm hearing from you and describing the kind of work Lockbit is doing, we're talking about a high level of training and expertise to try to block these cyber attacks. And that, or a budget. Or a budget. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, what is the economic proposition for a small town that's trying to protect itself against these hackers? How do they manage that? Is the U.S. government looking at ways to perhaps bolster some of the, the resources that are needed? There's some of that. You know, there's the uh, CISA, which is the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, easy to say. Mm-hmm. CISA has done a lot of work with trying to help schools, trying to help hospitals, try to help cities. A lot of it is sort of low-hanging fruit stuff. So if you are, for example, use multi-factor authentication, I'm sure you do that here we at do. WAMU. Mm-hmm. We, we do it as well. If you have firewalls up, there are a lot of things that people aren't doing that are sort of the simple stuff, and the hackers are finding it. A lot of times they get into a company because the password was 1234 and they never bothered to change it. All they have to do is scan the Internet and look for a particular vulnerability that wasn't patched. If you have an Apple phone, you know, they say, oh, there's a great vulnerability you need to patch tonight because people can get into your system. A lot of people don't do it. And if they don't do it, then that becomes, you know, an easy way for the hackers to get in. When we come back, more from my conversation with 1A's Jen White. We talk about the lessons learned from the cyber component of the war in Ukraine and how AI is changing the threat landscape. 
stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It is called Internet. I use the World Wide Web Information Superhighway. Cybersecurity. Why do things go viral? Click here. Last month, just before my conversation with Jen White, the host of WAMU's 1A, Russian hackers attacked one of Ukraine's major telecommunications providers. That's Alexander Komarov. He's the CEO of Kyivstar, which was on the receiving end of that Russian hack. And that's where we pick up our conversation. One of the most recent attacks has been on Ukraine's biggest mobile network operator, Kyivstar. The attack has knocked out cell and internet service for millions of people. What more can you tell us? Well, this is a very big telecom in Ukraine. But what's interesting about it is if you had done something like that to Verizon or AT&T in this country, it would have been devastating, right? We all have contracts, et cetera, et cetera. In Ukraine, it doesn't work that way. So in Ukraine, there are no sort of like contracts that you're locked into for telecom. So what everybody's doing is just they're switching very quickly to another telecom provider takes about 10 minutes, and they get something called an eSIM, which basically you take a picture of a QR code that they send you, and you're up on online. So it's a bad hack. It's the worst telecom hack they've had in quite some time, I think, since March. But at the same time, it's not as devastating as it would have been here. But it does show that Russia is still trying to go after Ukraine on the cyber battlefield. Well, the head of Kyivstar said in a video statement that they're working to restore communication on their network as soon as possible. Now, the war in Ukraine is being discussed by foreign policy experts as the first hybrid war involving cyber attacks. Give us a little more context for what that means. What's the difference between cyber being a tactic as opposed to a strategy? Uh, Now cyber is actually being folded into military campaigns. It's a specific component of the war. So maybe you take out a communication system and then tanks or infantry come in after it. And what's interesting is that while the rest of us were watching all the troops amass on the border in February two years ago, 
and wondering whether the Russians were going to come in or not come in. There was a secret mission that happened. Forces from U.S. Cyber Command showed up in Ukraine with civilian clothes on, and they had something called a hunt kit with them. A hunt kit, I may be the only person outside the military who's actually picked one up. It, it, it's in a suitcase, like a James Bondian suitcase with the sides that pop out. And inside is a supercomputer. It weighs 40 pounds, like a big bag of dog food. And it's small enough to actually fit in the overhead compartment above because they fly commercial. And obviously, it's a suitcase you don't want to lose. So they roll these into Ukraine, and they say to Ukraine, look, we're here to help. They had discussed this and negotiated this beforehand. We want to see if Russia has left any malware on your critical infrastructure. So they just sat down next to Ukrainians and, and started looking for bad things. And, and so you're describing what was called the Hunt Forward operation. That was the name of this operation. And you met one of the U.S. operators from Cyber Command. Um, and for folks who don't know, that's the cyber unit of the Department of Defense. And he's the one who found Russian malware inside a Ukrainian network. And this is what he told you about it. So it would pop up a little message on screen saying, you can pay X amount to get your files back. However, it became obvious that there was no method for this to reverse the encryption it did. At the end of the day, you weren't getting your files back, period, and stop. It was designed to destroy them. It was a very complex piece of malware. Um, it had three stages that it went through. And this was my first time discovering something so complex in the wild. So this was in December, months before what many considered the start of the war in February. Why was it important for Ukraine to find this malware before the Russian invasion took place? For exactly the reason we were saying, that they knew cyber was going to be part of a strategy to turn out the lights, to make military communications difficult for Ukrainian forces. So this is already part and parcel of things that Russia had done in the past, so they were expecting it. I think what was different about this was that they teamed up with U.S. Cyber Command and actually started pouring through these networks. And if you think about it, there's a bit of a trust fall, right? You have these people you've never met before in the U.S., you think they're allies, but how do you know if they're not just going to drop a little malware there while they're saying they're cleaning up the Russians, right? So there's a lot of trust that has mm -hmm. to go on there. So they're sitting side by side with Ukrainians, and they are going through their networks looking for any sort of anomalies. And they find these and they take them away. So we were the only people who actually talked to the operators who went to Ukraine. But then a couple of months ago, we actually went to Ukraine, and we talked to the Ukrainian operators about it. The U.S. rightfully was kind of cagey about what exactly they did. But the Ukrainians told us they actually found during that hunt forward operation 90 different pieces of malware. Now, that sounds like 90 attacks. It's not malware kind of builds on top of each other. But just think about what that actually means. That's 90 pieces of code that wanted to do something bad in these critical networks. Mm. And so we talked to the head of the SBU, which is kind of like their FBI, CIA, NSA, all sort of in one. His name is Ilya Vituk. And I said to him, so what does that mean? Like the Russians pushed the button on February 24th and expected all these cyber things to happen? Did it not happen? And he laughed. He said, it's a little more complicated than that. It doesn't work as you described every time, but sometimes it works just what you told about. But that's kind of what happened. Well, let's hear more from Ilya Vituk. We had those partnership with, with special services, with Cyber Command. So Russia thought that our infrastructure, our digital infrastructure, will be uh, on its knees. They started cyber attacks a couple of hours before the actual invasion, so also accompanying the, the invasion. But they failed in, in, in bringing it to really some serious and disastrous effects. How often does the U.S. deploy people 
to other nations to provide that type of, of cybersecurity support? I thought maybe it happened a few times a year. It turns out every week of the year, there is some sort of contingent from U.S. Cybercom that is somewhere helping allies try to find bad things on their networks. It's called Defend Forward. It was a General Nakasone idea that if you go out to where the malware is, where it's less protected, right, because the U.S. is considered pretty protected, if you go out there and look for that malware and you find it, then you can bring it home and study it and figure out ways to counteract it and then spread it out to everyone and you make that particular virus or malware, whatever it is, unable to work. And so the idea is if you're out there, particularly with the Ukrainians, for example, then it doesn't have a chance to come to the United States and happen here. Dina, what occurs to me is is the level of expertise needed to identify, root out malware. How is that changing the conversation around what it means for a nation to be secure? Oh, it's completely changed uh, the meaning of what that is. And, you know, we have the extra added thing now of AI. Mm -hmm. Everyone's talking a lot about AI, maybe almost too much about AI. But here's what's interesting about AI and cyber. AI is going to eventually be able to write malware, probably. It definitely writes better phishing emails, which are the ones you click on because you think it's from your mom. And in the old days, it used to have bad spelling. So at least you knew your mother's spelling was better than that, so it must not be from her. But now that's being corrected with AI and that sort of thing. So it's changing the game. But at least for now, if you talk to most experts, they will tell you that AI is really good at recognizing AI. Hmm. So AI may be getting better at the phishing email, but AI is also getting better at knowing that this is a technique that AI uses. This is probably AI and puts it in your junk file. So I think we're going to see more of that, uh, not just when it comes to threat intelligence and understanding what the threat is, but I think we're also going to see more of that in terms of defense. And if you talk to people like Rob Joyce, who is uh, sort of the head of cybersecurity for the National Security Agency, he says the one sort of bright spot here, at least for now, is that AI will be a help, at least for a little bit. So when we zoom out and we look globally, which nations are the biggest players in, in this cyberspace? Well, interesting. The U.S. always, you know, labels them and never names itself. But it's uh, Russia, China, Iran, and believe it or not, North Korea. Mm. North Korea, it basically pays for its missile program by hacking cryptocurrency accounts. And they're very, very good hackers. And you'd think that they wouldn't be, but they are among the big four. And so whenever you see some sort of a hack, you, just as a layperson, should probably guess You know, if it's intellectual property that is being stolen, probably the Chinese. If it's cryptocurrency that's being stolen, it's probably the North Koreans. If it's uh, Israel being hacked, it's probably Iran. And if it's Poland, Estonia, Ukraine, us, it's probably the Russians. As the sophistication of cyber attacks continues to evolve, what do you think that means for global conflicts, um, the ones that are occurring now and the ones we'll see in the future. We're already seeing some lessons from the war in Ukraine in the cyber realm today. We're working on an episode that takes a look at how Iran has stepped up its hacking against Israel and is using hacktivist groups and the same sort of, you know, sort of IT volunteer army against Israel that we saw in Ukraine. And this is only two years into the conflict. So I think we have to understand that cyber and cybersecurity is no longer 
a bolt-on component of a war, but instead at the very start of the planning of a war, there is a discussion about what the cyber component will contain. Just like you'd say, where are our subs going to be? Where are our boats going to be? Where are our tanks going to be? Where are our cyber operators going to be? And what are they going to do? I can't help but think about the fact that we are more connected now than we have been at any other point in history. Um, I, I think about the number of screens I look at every day. Uh, everything is is automated and it's online. How should we think about our personal security as this technology continues to evolve? Well, there's this whole idea of Internet of Things, right? I mean, soon your refrigerator will tell you you're almost out of milk. The downside of that is that anyone who hacks into your refrigerator will know you're almost out of milk, or maybe they will know that you haven't opened your refrigerator for two weeks. So maybe you aren't home. So maybe this is a great time to, I don't know, rob your place. So there's all this information that's going out that we're not controlling in a very real way. And there's not a lot we can do about it, aside from trying to do the sort of simple things to keep ourselves safe. That's changing your password. I know it sounds really small, but those small things are what the hackers are taking advantage of now. That's Dina Temple-Raston. She's the managing editor and host of Click Here. That's a weekly cyber and intelligence news podcast from Recorded Future News. Dina, thank you so much. Thank you. This is Click Here. Special thanks this week to 1A's host Jen White and producer Horalina Manarea. Click Here is a production of Recorded Future News, and it's hosted by Dina Temple-Raston and produced by Sean Powers, Will Jarvis, and me, Jade Abdul-Malik. Karen Duffin and Lou Olkowski edit the show, and Lucas Riley is our staff writer. Fact-checking by Darren Ankrum and original music by Ben Levingston. Megan Goff is our staff illustrator. That's it for this week. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.